y'all would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Sorry, I probably keep coughing. My brother and my mom just got back from Beijing, and they brought some Beijing voodoo virus um, to me. So who knows what it is. Uh, We've been going through 1 Corinthians this summer. This is the last message I'm going to do on 1 Corinthians. Um, It's the pinnacle of the book. Really, it's the center of our faith. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that uh, there's an expression, never stir up more snakes than you can shoot. I don't know where that came from, but it's a great vivid image for what I'm going to do tonight. There are going to be a few snakes out there, a few questions that you guys have that I'm not going to be able to shoot down in the limited time that we have. That's why we have things like theological coffee houses that you guys are welcome to swing by my house um, and talk about this later. But if you would read with me in 1 Corinthians 15... Um, And I'm going to read select verses through this chapter. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am also the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but grace, the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify of God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ had been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 54. 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would give great clarity to, to this extremely important topic. The center of our faith. I pray that the reality of the resurrection would strike a chord in our hearts and in our minds tonight through your Spirit. I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away, but Lord, let your words remain and may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. In the 1920s, um, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were professors at Oxford University. They quickly became uh, friends because of their love for, for literature. It was this common passion, and so they, were, they, they, were, they spent a lot of time together. Even though Tolkien at the time was a believer, and C.S. Lewis was a staunch atheist, and they were still really good friends. Um, and they would always take walks, and on one of their walks, they, they had a conversation about fairy tales, legends. And uh, Tolkien was talking about how much he loved fairy tales and he loved legends and that they, they really moved him. And he had probably studied legends and those stories more than anyone alive. Um, most of these stories have the same theme. There's usually a clear good and a clear evil that are fighting one another. And usually the whole land is under the spell of some type of evil and it has to be broken. And then there's going to come a hero or a king. Maybe a king's been gone and then the king returns. And he's going to break the curse. Drive the evil from the land. And usually at a great sacrifice to himself. And a lot of these legends go that way. Have a, at least part of that in them. Things like Robin Hood or King Arthur. Um, different stories about a, an absent king coming. Now... Interesting enough, critics over the years, especially during the 50s and 60s, thought that those kind of tales, stories, wouldn't last. Because they're built on absolute morals. Clear good. Clear evil. They said, but there are no absolute morals. Nothing is as clear as it seems. Morality is kind of a great, and so those tales will go away. But they haven't. They're always around. And you look at the, the most popular books that are around, the most popular movies that are around, and they're always ones that follow a lot of the same plot lines of old folk tales, old fantasy, clear evil, clear good versus evil. You, you have, in my day, things like Star Wars, clearly. You know, you, you have the good force, the, uh, the bad force, dark force. Um, you have Harry Potter today. There's this evil curse going across the land, and yet there's this chosen one who's somehow going to come and fight at great sacrifice to himself. These are the stories we love to hear. Now, critics, they love the stories that are really ambiguous, and you walk away scratching your head like you don't know what was right, what was wrong. You're just really confused. Critics love those, but people, they love these stories because it resonates with us. And this is what Lewis, or, uh, Tolkien was telling Lewis. These stories really resonate with me. And, and Lewis said, you're right. Those kind of stories resonate with me too. I love them. I, I, I don't know why. And Tolkien said, I have this theory. It's, they're all based on an underlying reality. That's why our hearts resonate. It's, they're based on some kernel of truth. The stories aren't true, but 
they're based on this underlying truth. And Lewis said, interesting. I don't buy it, but interesting. And Tolkien said, have you ever thought of the Christian message that way? Have you? The whole earth is under a curse. Sin brought it. We're all waiting for our coming king to come and to break the curse. And, and he came and he broke it. At, he, he took on the, the leaders of the day, the powers of the day. He took them on and he won. And he broke the curse, a great sacrifice to himself. And he's telling this to Lewis. And Lewis goes, you're right. You're right. I, I can see now that, that the, the, the Christian story is one that is kind of based on some kind of underlying reality. And Tolkien said, no, it's there. You're wrong. The Christian story, the story of Jesus, is the underlying reality. It is the story that all of our hearts know to be true. It's the story that we yearn for and we long for and we recognize when we hear it. Yes, that's true. All the other stories are based on that. And that's what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 15 is this story. It's about the return of our king and what that provides, what that does for us, what his sacrificial death and his resurrection brings and how it breaks the curse. Because we're in a world that's in bondage that is under a curse and we know when we look around that things are not as they should be. The resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. Um, Everything we believe, all of our hope is wrapped up in this one historical event. This is why Paul spends so much time. This is the longest chapter Paul ever writes. You know, he didn't really write in chapters. That was later. But uh, when people wanted to chapter a thought, they included all 58 verses because they, they decided we can't break this up. This is all one thought, and it's all about the resurrection. Now, the centrality of the resurrection has been lost in our day. Um, it is not that Christians don't believe in the resurrection. We do believe in the resurrection. We just don't know what we believe about the resurrection. How does it affect our lives? We have some vague notion of, you know, there's hope and there's heaven and uh, somehow conquered death, but it's all very vague and we kind of put it into the background. And you can even see this by the way we celebrate Christmas versus the way we celebrate Easter. I mean, Christmas gets the entire month of December. All the songs, every service specially designed towards Christmas. You know, everybody takes off for Christmas holidays. We all go to see family. It's, it's huge. Easter? Well, we have Easter Sunday that we celebrate this. And it's not that we don't believe Easter. It's just that we don't really know what the resurrection means in our lives. And so we focus on Christmas, you know, but really, if you were to break down to Bible, the Bible into what actually tells of the birth of Jesus, you're going to get about five chapters. Five chapters. Um, the Gospel of Mark doesn't even include the birth of Jesus. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, if you throw that out, you're going to throw out the majority of Paul. You're going to throw out huge sections of the Gospels because they see this as central and so we have to restore the resurrection to the center of our faith, not just some kind of attached belief that's somewhat vague. Well, the first thing that Paul does is he reminds them of the gospel by which they are saved. And when mentioning the resurrection of Jesus, he gets very specific. 
He says, listen, Peter saw Jesus raised. The 12 disciples saw Jesus raised. 500 men saw Jesus saved or uh, resurrected. Now, most of you or, or most of these people are still alive. And when he says that, he's basically saying, go ahead, ask them. This is only 20 years after it happened. These people are still alive. Go ask them. Because the historicity of this is crucial. You must understand Jesus physically rose from the dead, not spiritually rose from the dead, not metaphorically rose from the dead, but it is a physical fact. And he hammers this home because he says, this is how we are saved. This is how we are saved. Now, I realize any time a Christian mentions the word saved, everybody has a different image up there. Usually it's the wrong image. It's a word we need to define. Um, in a few weeks, we're going we're gonna to define that word through looking at some Old Testament passages. But I think most people believe that being saved means we go to heaven when we die. That's what being saved is. Heaven. Check. Go in there. I'm saved. That's the goal of our salvation. We're saved from this world. We could cast off our body and our souls are going to go up, be with Jesus in heaven forever. That's saved. Most people that I've talked to about this are pretty surprised when I say, you know what? The Bible actually says very little about going to heaven when you die. Very little about it. That's not salvation. Biblically, that's not salvation. Heaven is not the goal of our salvation. Maria Shriver, famous theologian. No, actually, she's not. She's married to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, she wrote a book called What's Heaven? I have to cough here. I'm going to read you an excerpt from her book called What's Heaven? Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you are good throughout your life, then you go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with Him. And although my grandma died, she is alive in me. Most importantly, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels, and she is watching over us from up there. You could go on. This is exactly what millions of Christians, especially Western Christians, believe about heaven. At least in practical terms, that's how it works its way out in their life. That's what they believe. I would even say that's what millions even hope for, is this vague notion of, of heaven. Some disembodied spirit resting on clouds, playing music, talking to loved ones who have gone on before us. Most of us, that's our view. But that is not, it is clearly not what the Bible has to say about heaven. And it is also not our goal as Christians to end up there. Heaven is not our hope. Salvation does not mean going to heaven when you die. Now, when you are talking to one of your friends, or I've had this conversation with somebody who 
said, you know, all the faiths are pretty much the same. They all just teach you different ways to be saved. And at that point, I stopped the person and said, no. There is no salvation out there like the biblical salvation. There is nothing that comes even close. They're not all the same. You see, our view of what's going to happen in the future is totally different. We believe that we will be given resurrected bodies. Not that the earth will be destroyed and will go to heaven as some spirit. No, we believe that we'll be given new bodies and there will be a new earth. And it'll be very physical. You're not going to find a salvation like that. Heaven is not our home. But the redemption of this world, this world is our home. And now, I have to be absolutely clear on this because I know we've been bombarded by sermons, by books, by songs that depict heaven as our home, our final resting place. We have current songs. Catherine Scott, um, she's from Northern Ireland. She writes great songs. Hungry, um, At the Foot of the Cross, great songs. But she also has one on that album. It's called Heaven is Our Home. That's the whole point of it. Delirious has on one of their albums the song called Heaven is Our Home. Start listening to Christian radio if you can tolerate it for more than 10 minutes and you are going to hear that theme. Heaven is our home. And it's not just contemporary writers. One of my favorite hymns of all time is Mistaken, How Great Thou Art. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and joy will fill my heart Oh, wait, shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? As if our joy is going to be when we're taken out of this place. And if Paul had been writing this, he would have said, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and redeem this world, what joy will fill my heart? When I get a new body, what joy will fill my heart? Often when we come to Scripture, we even read into Scripture these false notions of what heaven is like. We get to passages like Philippians 3 that say our citizenship is in heaven. Certainly sounds like, you know, kind of heaven is our home. But then it says we're waiting for the Lord to come out of heaven to us. And we need to pray what Jesus prayed. Lord, your kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Bring heaven to this earth. Not may we just go away. To believe that heaven is ultimately your home, where your soul or your spirit goes to live on forever, is to acknowledge that creation was a mistake and that your bodies were a mistake. And so they just must be discarded so that God can start something new. It's to believe that when God created the world and he said it is good, well, it really wasn't good. And when he created man and he said it is very good, well, it really wasn't because it can be discarded. And that's not the case. The Corinthians really struggled with this view of the body so much that, well, Paul's talking about it here, but in chapter 6 at one point, he, he had to remind him, he says, just so you know, the Lord is for the body. The Lord is for your body. That was the reason to be sexually pure. I don't really think we believe this. 
But the world's not going to be discarded. It's going to be renewed. Habakkuk 2 says that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the sea. I love that image. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the sea. And you see, the earth is beautiful. The earth is good. Like a chalice is a great way to think of it. Think of the earth like a chalice. Which, yeah, there's some things on the earth that are beautiful. You know, the gold, maybe some jewels. But a chalice is mostly beautiful because what it was designed to, to, to hold. And the earth is that way. It was designed to be filled completely with the glory of the Lord. And so as beautiful as some things are, it has not reached its potential until the glory of the Lord floods this place at Jesus' return. It's a shadow is a way to think of it. You know, when a, when a person's really, really sick and maybe they've lost a weight, you say they're a shadow of the man they were. Well, and you can still see part of who, who they could be there. You don't throw them aside. They're a shadow. One day this earth is a shadow, but one day it will realize its potential when the Lord returns. Look at Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8, verse 18. I have to go here. Gosh, this is... You could see this as some of the pinnacle of Paul's thought. Certainly of Romans. In which he has been building up for seven chapters now until he gets to Romans 8. And he sees this as the goal of salvation. Right here. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await or eager, wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. All of creation is longing to be freed, not destroyed. It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, not to leave. And go to heaven. And Paul says that all of the pain that we feel in this life is not proof that the world is bad and needs to be discarded and you've got to leave it, but it's actually proof of a childbirth. It's the pains, meaning new life is coming. And the early Christian hope certainly was centered on the resurrection and the redemption of creation and not on heaven. Let's take a closer look at exactly how this idea of resurrection of Jesus is so tied to our resurrection and our redemption. Now, the vast majority of first century Jews believed in the resurrection. The vast majority did. They just believed everyone would be raised on the day of judgment, on the day of the Lord. When, he, when the day of the Lord came... All would be raised. And you can hear this in Martha's words when Lazarus had died. He said, Jesus, I know that he will be raised on the resurrection of the last day. 
We believe in this resurrection. They believed in a day that God would come. But knowing that will actually help you understand why nobody was at the tomb of Jesus on the third day. No one. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it is really hard to imagine Jesus spending all this time with all these disciples over and over again. Hey, just a few days, I'm going to be killed. They're going to deliver me over and be killed, but don't worry, the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. He says it over and over and over. So Jesus is killed on the third day. Who comes to the tomb? I mean, out of curiosity, I would have just come. I mean, he's been saying this for three years now. Out of curiosity, just let's just see what happens. But nobody comes. And it's not that the disciples didn't believe in the resurrection. They just didn't believe that the resurrection happened to one person first. That Jesus, one person, the day of judgment would come on one person, not on everybody. And one person would be raised from the dead. Never crossed their mind, although they believed in the resurrection. Look at verse 20 here. We're still in Romans. Sorry, we're not. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the one who goes before us. He's the first fruit. His resurrected body, we're going to have one just like it. He goes before us. Or as Paul says, when we see Him, we shall be just like Him. Look in Colossians 1 if you want to turn there. Sorry, I'm turning so many different places. Colossians 1.15, familiar passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And I have heard so many messages on that that just talk... They say the firstborn is just talking about Christ is supreme. That's not at all what it's talking about. It says he is a firstborn. You look at the resurrection. Christ was raised first. And when we look at that, our hearts should swell it with hope and say, we will be raised like that. We will be given a body like that. Jesus goes before us. He is the firstborn. So how does this make a difference for us? Let me give you two reasons. Over the next few years, I'm going to give you 20. But we're just going to look at two. Man, I love studying this stuff. This just lights a fire in me. Look at verse 58, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. The last verse. We'll just look at the two reasons given here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
So we're to be steadfast. We're to be immovable. There is to be nothing in this life that should shake us if we believe in the resurrection. Nothing. Death cares about death. We're going to be given a new body. We're going to be raised from the dead. We do not fear it. We'll be better than before. A seed buried imperishable or perishable raised up imperishable. A plague hit the Roman Empire um, the second and third centuries right after Christianity is just kind of getting its start. A third of the population died from this plague. Everyone left the cities. They're all fleeing the cities. People are dying. That is everyone except for the Christians. The Christians stayed. And you read from this, not in, not in the Bible, but in secular works, historical books, the Christians stayed. And they knew the likelihood of, of them getting this disease and dying would be great if they stayed, but they knew they should stay and they should show kindness and they should show grace and compassion to those who have these disease, this plague. And it spoke volumes to the Roman world. And the reason they did that is because the resurrection was central to their faith. I die? Who cares? I will be raised. I will be raised again. Come on, death. I will stay and show these people what the kingdom of God is about. The second reason comes from the end of verse 58. The end of it. When it says, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now believing that being saved, if you believe that means your bodies go to heaven when you die, I mean, you will go to heaven, but it's not your final resting place. But if you believe that is your final resting place, that's going to mean that all of your labors on earth are in vain. They are in vain. And you see this in Romans 8, 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's an unusual verse. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I don't know if you've ever thought of why in the world does creation wait to see who is a son of God? It's under a curse. And it's waiting to see who is a son of God, who is a Christian. I hope we understand this. This is so crucial to who we are at Redeemer Community Church. And it's because the redemption of the world is tied into our redemption. The redemption of the world is tied into our redemption. Remember that when God created Adam and Eve and He, he says, I give you dominion over all the earth. You're to rule the earth. Tend the garden. Make the most of it. Rule over the animals. You have dominion. And then we went and screwed it all up. And the world became under a curse. 
But now through our redemption, we can rightfully rule the earth again. We can rightfully bring out the most of this world. That's why the book of Hebrews says we're going to be co-heirs with Christ. We're going to be rulers with Christ. Rulers do things. Rulers work. We're going to have bodies. We will do things. The Bible says that there's going to be singing. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be eating. There's going to be real work in the kingdom of God. And we will be doing it and we'll relish in doing it. It's what we were created for. To bring out the most on the earth. So that the glory of God might cover the earth like waters cover the sea. And so all creation is longing for our redemption. To see who we are. Because as sons of God, the redemption of this world begins to break through with us. And you saw this in 1 Corinthians 3 earlier. When Paul says you're all building on on foundations. If you build on the foundation of the gospel, when Christ returns, it's going to work. But if you don't build on the gospel, it's all going to be burned up. It's all going to be perishable. But what Paul says is you could do work that remains. You can do redeemed work that remains. We can work now in this life for this city And the work will remain. When when we give a a homeless person a meal, if your mentality is, I'm going to give them a meal, you know, it kind of shows them what Jesus was like, um, and I'm going to, hopefully that will prepare them so I can then share the gospel with them. As if the gospel is some kind of detached message from actually giving the person a meal. No, what, what happens when you give a homeless person a meal You are demonstrating to them. You are showing them the kingdom of God. Your kindness remains. It will never die. Your compassion remains. Your love remains. And you're part of the redemption. And we are allowing the kingdom of God to break through into that person's life. Don't be of so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. That's what happens when you think heaven is your goal. The redemption of this world is why we were saved. I pray that our prayer as a church is, Father, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with me. Lord, there is so much there. So much there. So so much we're going to have to unpack over the years to really work in the centrality of Your resurrection in our lives and what that means for us, what that means for this world. It is not some detached event with some vagueness about conquering death or forgiveness. No, You are the first fruits. The first Born, you have gone before us. And indeed, all of creation will follow behind you. We rejoice in that. And we long for the time when the world is covered with your glory. 
just like the waters cover the sea. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our present and our future King. Amen.